Precocial species are born in very small litters, except for you, your children, but usually very small litters. <laughs> Recording is in progress. Hey, Malika. Hey, Chris. How are you? I am awesome, by which I mean tired, but awesome. <laughs> You're living that best anthropologist life. I know. I've been a real publicly engaged scholar for the last month. I've been putting my money, or for the last semester, I've been putting my money where my mouth is. I've been running this public public engagement learning community on my campus to train grad students and mid-career professionals on how to integrate public engagement with their research, like from the beginning or retrofit it. And then I went and did that, like by talking about my book and tattooing and publicly engaged scholarship wherever anyone would have me. It seems That's like, amazing. yeah, it's something. It's and awesome. And great. It's awesome in retrospect. <laughs> I'm sure that the podcast got quite a number of shout outs. Yeah, we did. We did talk a little. We had, I did a whole talk. I, I made a new talk at for Purdue on publicly engaged scholarship and talked a lot about the podcast. I know I can tweak that to integrate some other aspects of the work that I do because I always kind of joke that my my research is like. Uh, finding evidence for things that people popularly or commonly know to already be true. Fire is relaxing. <laughs> tattoos are stressful. But the joke is there are gateways to look at science, right? They're, they're, yes. in, they're things that get people interested. And I realized as I was giving this talk, I'm like, oh, shit, everything I kind of do sort of falls in this vein. Let me get your attention and now pull the curtain back and show you the mechanisms. So... I mean, I feel like we as as scholars and as anthropologists, we get we're really lucky that we get to do that. We're kind yeah. of like the ringmaster of a circus. We're bringing people in to get there excited. You go. And I act that way, like with the hat and the mustache <laughs> and the cane. All you're missing is a tamed lion. I know. I feel like a buffoon sometimes, but you're right. I am the MC and just have to be grandiose about these things. <laughs> It's a skill. It's a skill. I'm glad that you're teaching it to people. Well, thank you very much. So in that spirit, today we're sort of branching out a little bit or, or we're going, we're kind of doing some of the other work that we do in the podcast for the last, you know, several months. We've been focusing on articles that have just come out in AJHD, but we also want to talk to people who've been working in the field for a long time and whose work is foundational to everything we do. I feel like it's funny because I'm reading the chapters from um, Karen Rosenberg and Wendy Trevathan uh, that that they sent us. And I already had the book that they're talking about, Costly But Cute, which came out a few years ago. It's great. But I, I, this stuff seems like I've been talking about this my whole career as though it's all true. I've been following this story forever. And as a parent, you know, I've been I thought about it a lot through my kids growing up about how much work it takes to raise them. And yet they're so goddamn cute. You don't you, like you resist all temptation to throttle them when they're driving you crazy. And nobody <laughs> else does that either. So anyway, I'm I'm excited to talk about them yeah. and talk talk to them. Oh my god, am I am I that tired that I'm babbling nonsense? So let me go ahead and introduce uh, Karen Rosenberg, and then you can tell us about Wendy Trevathan. 
Perfect. All right. So Karen Rosenberg is a professor at the University of Delaware. She's a biological anthropologist with a specialty in paleoanthropology. So she brings us lots of perspective on the obstetric obstetrical dilemma or the constraints of pelvis bipedalism and having babies looking at it from paleo anthropological perspective she received her degree from the university of chicago and michigan fortunately kara is not here to gloat hey, about another michigan I, alum. I am here as a fellow michigan alum oh, so course, i will of, gloat on of her behalf of course you are all right i figured <laughs> i figured that would happen and she's been in delaware since 87 she studied human fossils and skeletal material in museums in europe north america asia in Africa, and her research interests are in the origin of modern humans and the evolution of modern human childbirth and human infant helplessness, which is, I know we're going to talk a little bit about today. And she's published in edited volumes as well as anthropological and clinical obstetrical journals. Among other publications, Karen is the co-editor with Wenda of the book Costly and Cute, Infant Helplessness and Human Evolution, which I just held up. That's from 2016. Co-editor with Jerry De Silva of a special issue of Anatomical Record. And they are going to be talking to us today about a new book. They being, including? Including a Dr. Wena Trevathan, who is currently a professor emerita at, at New Mexico State University. She is a biological anthropologist whose research concerns aspects of human reproduction, including childbirth, maternal health, sexuality, menopause, and evolutionary medicine. Her most recent book is Ancient Bodies, Modern Lives, How Evolution Has Shaped Women's Health, published by Oxford University Press uh, in 2010. Uh, Wanda's current affiliation is Senior Scholar for the School of Advanced Research at, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hello, Karen. Hello, hello. It's so good to have you both here. When no, you're muted. You. Windows muted now. I think I set the settings to mute everyone as they come in. I apologize for that. Well, that's it's, a good idea. So Less we don't chaos. Just, so we don't come in blasting. And then what what you'll <laughs> notice do is we mute ourselves to cue each other about who's going to talk next. So it helps when there's a lot of folks on the screens like this. How are you both? Great. Right. Good. Excellent. Well, we already did a little bit of an introduction, so we're just going to jump right into things. And I'm going to start with Karen, because she's on the left side of my screen. And we're going to ask you both first the same question. So the sausage of science is about how the sausage is made of scientific research. And we always want to know first how the scientist is made. So your origin story, how you got interested in anthropology. Obviously, we read your 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 pedigree and your 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 degrees, but how you got interested in the topic that you got interested in and became a professional anthropologist. Okay, sure. So I was originally an undergraduate history major, and my roommate was an anthropology major, and her classes seemed like more fun than mine. And so when I was a senior, I switched to anthropology. And I did not take any biological anthropology because at the university where I was, University of Chicago, not only was it not required, it wasn't even suggested in those days, but I had a job as a research assistant working for a herpetologist who did evolutionary morphology and who studied tadpole oral morphology. 
And so after I graduated, I um, worked for him for a year. And he was a fantastic mentor. He was an anatomist. And he um, gave me a project, to an SEM project, to look at a little secretory surface on the inside of tadpole mouths. This is probably more than you wanted to hear, but you asked. So, um, and he said, I'm going to give you a project to do, and it's going to be really hard for you. You're going to be terrible at it, but I think it'll be good for you. And it was true. I would lose the specimens. They would float away. I didn't really know what I was doing. Eventually, I figured it out. And eventually, we wrote a big paper together that would have been much easier for him to write for himself, really. But he was mentor for me. And I think he in, thought that was a valuable thing to be doing. So then I applied to graduate school. And even though I had never had a biological anthropology course, I was accepted in biological anthropology. I guess I should say I, the way I found it was that in this year off, I worked for the anatomist in the tadpole lab. I did work on an archeological project in Spain and I had been an anthropology major. And I kind of realized that the intersection of all those fields was paleoanthropology. And so I applied in that and I got in and I went to Michigan and I was a paleoanthropology student I did a dissertation on craniofacial anatomy in Southeast Asia that I abandoned at the last moment because after I had collected a lot of data because it was not very well thought out or planned. And, and I switched topics and I worked on the pelvis and Neanderthals. And there was a one aspect of the pelvis and Neanderthals, specifically the pubis, that was thought to be really different than in modern humans. I sort of took the approach that let's see how different it was. Let's see what modern variation is like. And let's see if we can see in what way Neanderthals really were different if they were. And I, and because it was the, it's the pubis, which is long in Neanderthals and that forms the front of the bony birth canal. I got interested in childbirth. And then one day I was working on my dissertation and I saw a thing in the anthropology newsletter, which was a newsletter on paper. I know it's hard to imagine. And it said that Wendy Trevathan and Helen Fisher were doing a symposium at the AAA meetings on the evolution of human birth. And I went to see Milford Walpoff, my advisor, and I said, how come they didn't invite me? And he said, they don't know who you are. Call them up and tell them that you want to be in their symposium. So I did, and I was. And I was pregnant at the time in this, when I was in this symposium. It's a great way to start my career. And then after that, Wenda and I realized that we had this common interest in the evolution of human birth. And so we eventually, um, I guess about, was like eight years later, Wenda, we, or maybe 94, 92, yeah. I don't know. Sometime later, we organized the symposium at the AAPA meetings in Denver. And then we wrote a paper for evolutionary anthropology. And then that's been one of the main things that I've worked on ever since. Wasn't Sherry Washburn sitting on the front row? At oh, yeah. That's <laughs> true. So I was standing up there pregnant, about to defend my thesis a week later. And I'm thinking to myself, I am so not nervous. This is so great. And I'm looking, there were lots of people there, like hundreds, right? I don't know. It seemed like thousands. And then just as I was about to start, Sherry Washburn like toddles in. And all the way comes to the front row. And then I was so nervous because oh my gosh, he did a lot of the early work on sexual dimorphism in the pelvis anyway. And then we've been working ever since. And we, you know, we come to things with 
different perspectives, but Wenda can tell you maybe about that. <laughs> I, before we go to, to Wenda, I just want to say, because we talk about this on the spot on the podcast all the time, like what a small world the human biology and biological anthropology community is. So I cut my teeth in anthropology. I became an anthropologist because of Milford Walpoff, because I took as many classes as I could with him. And my early anthropology research experience was measuring pelvises for Caroline Van Sickle's oh. dissertation work as an undergrad. And so I was on her committee, actually. That's so wild. Like, what a what a small, wonderful world. Um, and connecting those things, to Dr. Trevathan, go ahead. Well, it's my story's a little bit different. Karen's is probably a little more academic, but... Oh. Uh, my mama grew up at Mesa Verde, so I heard tales about archaeology, Southwest archaeology, all of my uh, life. And I decided when I was about 12 that I wanted to be an archaeologist when I grew up. And this was back in the dark ages of anthropology. So by the time I got to, to uh, my undergraduate program, where I went in with an anthropology major, uh, declared already, it was the, the atmosphere for women in archaeology was a little less friendly, I guess, than it seemed to be to me. This was at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, not that they were unfriendly, but it seemed a little bit uh, more friendly to be in cultural. So I switched to cultural in, in my interest. And then when I applied to graduate school, I applied in cultural, never having had a biological anthropology course, just like Karen uh, described for herself, that it wasn't required. And I don't even think at the time there was a biological anthropologist on the faculty, except maybe a, a visiting uh, a biological anthropologist. But then, like a lot of origin stories, I took a class, right, that just blew me away. Um, and the person who was teaching it was Jack Kelso. Um, he's He's been dead for a few years now, but um, he was... The, first person to come out with a textbook in anthropology. So he was, his uh, emphasis was teaching and the importance of teaching uh, and spreading the word about anthropology. So it really, uh, before I actually, I, I had to take this as a remedial course because I didn't have it and it was a four fields program. So I had to have that before I actually matriculated. And by the time I got there, I had uh, had my first official class. I was already a biological anthropology major. So I stuck with that. And I think the next step in my origin story was going to a AAA conference to a meeting at eight o'clock on Sunday morning. So this is a very important message to anybody who's trying to figure out what to do a dissertation on. Go to the, that early eight o'clock Sunday morning. But it was a session on birth, which was a rare topic to be approached uh, at that time. This was 1976, I think. And um Two in other words, there was a, the work of two pediatricians um, was presented at that time, and they talked about species-specific behaviors in human mothers at the time of birth. I was completely galvanized by this. I mean, it was like one of those eureka moments. I was totally transformed. I had planned to do a dissertation, do a dissertation research on nutritional anthropology because I'm very interested in food, and so that was had been my focus. And then all of a sudden, I was you know, changed within an hour <laughs> to a passion for childbirth because um, my first uh, concern about their research, it was exciting, but their sample was 14 women in downtown Cleveland in hospital births. And I thought, wait a second, this can't, how can you describe species-specific behaviors? But it was a wonderful illustration about how making a statement 
And then having people respond to that in a way of, I'm going to do the research now. And this is the kind of thing that Karen and I have experienced. We have made statements that we thought were good statements, um, accurate statements, and they've turned out to not be exactly what the way we presented it. But, you know, half a dozen people all of a sudden are doing work to try to challenge that. I don't mean in a negative way, but my idea was I've got to do the same study they did, but in a more naturalistic um, population. So I applied to midwifery training programs. Um, that was the way I decided I was going to do my participant observation was to immerse myself uh, as a midwife trainee. And that would um, give me access to a population, of course, that I could study, but it would also give me the experience of birth without actually having to giving birth. So I could either go have a bunch of babies and make some descriptions about that, or I could train as a midwife. And it was a little bit uh, better for me at that time in my life to uh, to train as midwife. And I think uh, one thing I should point out is that I have never had children. So that's a kind of an interesting thing. I'm quite intimate with childbirth from one end of the birth canal, but uh, no familiarity from the other end of the birth canal. So in a way, I think Karen and I, our, our interest and our experience kind of complement each other in that. I love that. And uh, I, I study tattooing and I think it, it reminds me like half of our crew don't have any and half do. And I'm starting to think about because uh, I have a colleague who became a tattoo artist to do the ethnographic piece and get closer. And I'm like, wow, that seems so radical. But now I'm like, oh, shit, I know like 700,000 midwives and doulas who are in anthropology because of you. Right. Yeah. Like they they modeled that. I just got back from Purdue. Amanda Vile, her yeah, students yeah. are doing that. We oh, have fine. students here. Holly Harand is here. Some of our students are doulas and midwives and doing that. And. So I, I want to interject two things before I ask the next question. One is, it's so cool that both of you found your your way to biological anthropology the way you did, because I was similar, right? I was in different fields altogether and then went completely cultural as a undergrad and then went completely biological in grad school just because of where the interests were. And I'm fortunate that I was admitted to a program uh, because sometimes it's hard to get into a biological anthropology program if you have it studied anthropology, but one of the people who was interested in me in the first program I went to at Rutgers was Helen Fisher. So I hadn't heard that name for a while. And it it's right before my wife and I had triplets. So the I, I think the sequence of events, Malika and I were just talking about how your work, re reading the chapter and then going back to Costly But Cute, it's all truisms to me. I've I've lived with your work so long and watched it with my own kids and had it in my mind for so long that I'm like, of course, all of this is true. We I've I've been thinking this way for a long time, and now I realize why. It's those early exposures, and you know I'm gonna fanboy here a little bit. So uh, it's 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 really refreshing to hear your perspectives. It's validating, and I want to put an additional pin out there for anthropology departments that require people to have previously had anthropology training before they admit you to a grad program that you'll lose great scholars. So mm -hmm. thank you for those stories. Now let's jump to the book because we already, we already talked a little bit about costly, but cute. And you mentioned in the email that your the new book that you're working on is based on that first section, which is really about the human, the helplessness. And as I said, I'm reading this and I'm thinking about my own experience with triplets. They're 19 now and in college, but the investment that we put into them and the stress and 
you know, all that stuff. Like I relate to it so much. So I was just wondering if you could talk more about that and what the book is going to be and what we have to look forward to. I hope I didn't spill too many beans there. So a lot of um, the work that we did on childbirth was sort of inspired by this idea that Washburn talked about in 1960. And he did it as a throwaway line in a popular paper that he didn't, I mean, I don't think he put any big effort into it, but he argued that in humans, the pelvis has conflicting um, selection on it from locomotion and from childbirth, meaning large brains. And he argued that the way to mitigate the difficulties of childbirth was to have babies born early. And so he, and and he said, we could do this because we're cultural animals and we have all these ways of um, buffering babies from the environment. And this was about the time that Ashley Montague was talking about extra gestation and cultural adaptations to these very helpless, vulnerable babies. And so after we spent a couple decades writing about childbirth, we sort of decided to change, to, to focus on that helplessness. The first thing we did was that we put together a seminar at the School of Advanced Research in Santa Fe and invited the people who are authors of the chapters in the book, Costly and Cute. And we, and, and, and we, we wrote the introductory chapter, as you know. We were kind of arguing that human babies are helpless in a different way than other helpless young, right? So if you think about, and and now I'm sort of also talking about some more recent stuff that we did, uh, an annual review paper I wrote, and this is also what we're writing about in our book, that if you think about the continuum of altricial and precocial, which Adolf Portman um, articulated in the mid 20th century, you know, altricial species have large litters and no hair and their eyes are closed and they're born after a short gestation length. And and precocial species are born in very small litters, except for you, your children, but usually very small litters. <laughs> Our eyes are open at birth and we have a long gestation length. And, and so that um, Portman wrote about that continuum. And of course, primates as a group are totally precocial, right? We have long gestation lengths. We're born one at a time, we our eyes are open. And and yet Portman argued that we were that we had some features of helplessness that he called secondary altriciality. And the reason that I kind of was a little difficult the way I said that is that we're not altricial. We're helpless, right? So I think secondary altriciality has been a kind of confusing term. But basically what we think is that and this is really what we're writing about, is that the way that humans are helpless gives us an opportunity to be exposed to a lot of rich stimulation, language, kinship, emotional stuff at an at a early stage of our development outside the womb. And that maybe that sets us up for all the cultural absorbing that we're going to do over the next few years. So 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 it may be that helplessness evolved first because of the constraints of birth, but then it had this additional feature. Wendy, do you want to say something else? Well, I was just going to say that in that book, in the seminar, Costly and Cute, we realized after we had finished it that I would say probably 75, 80% of everything that's in the book and that we wrote about in there, uh, it's about the costly side. What are the costs of producing these really, really helpless babies? 
And we had some stuff on the cute side. And Sarah Hurdy, who was one of the authors of one of the uh, chapters of the book, has contributed heavily in that area as well. But I think we decided there was a little bit of unfinished business. We need to spend some more time talking about the cute side and what the attractiveness of babies. And of course, of course, cuteness is in the eye of the beholder. Some people may look at little newborn babies and think they're actually really awful looking. Um, but most people, especially the parents, fortunately, and the grandparents and so on, are galvanized by those little things. And that was one of the things I noticed in, in the uh, attending the births that I did. I probably attended about 250 births in my training period. And then I had about 110 women that I actually was doing this more systematic kinds of observations on. But these women and anybody who's giving birth knows this, they, they go through um, a pretty stressful period, especially once uh, transition, the last phase of labor begins, where it's pretty stressful. It's for most people described as painful. And oftentimes the main goal is to try to get this thing over with as fast as possible. And it seems it always seemed to me that the women would be absolutely exhausted once this was over and then would just collapse and go to sleep. And of course, the baby is also having some challenging times getting through the birth canal and so on. But what I would see in that first hour after birth was because that was my specific time focus was this amazing life in both of these, these individuals and, and the others that were there, because oftentimes the fathers were there or the support person and other family members and all this amazing interaction. And this was also the time when people were talking about mother-infant bonding and how important the first hour after birth was and that kind of thing. And there was a lot of political controversy. I don't think any of us write any, about anything that doesn't become a political controversial issue, but a lot of controversy about that. But it did seem to me that some amazing stuff was going on. And so in the book that we're writing now, we're, we're looking at that. We're reviewing some of the stuff there. And we're looking very narrowly at the last three months of pregnancy and the first three months of life. So we're focusing really uh, closely in that period of time. And when they talk about this, this helplessness and this kind of secondary altruciality um, that sometimes I think Montague talked in terms of about a year after birth, uh, Portman may have talked about nine months, the first nine months and so on. But we were looking really tightly at what we consider the most important six months of a human life. Now, as individuals, we probably have way more, some, some specific moments that were far more important than anything. But as a species, we would argue that those six months, uh, the first, last trimester of pregnancy and the first three months of, of life uh, for the baby are absolutely uh, important and, and critical. Critical things are going on during that time period. And so we're looking at the what is it that attracts caretakers, what kinds of characteristics does the and charms does the baby have that attracts them, and what might be the motivations behind that. Again, not trying try not to get into psychological kinds of issues here, but how some of that relationship, those relationships may help us understand a whole lot more uh, about us as human beings from an evolutionary perspective. So I'll just great. add one thing to what Wenda said, which was, you know, that when these guys in the like 1960 or so, we're talking about culture as a way to buffer babies from the environment. I think that they were thinking about blankets and fire and houses. And what we have, what's been added to that, um, it doesn't contradict that at all, but what's been added to that is Sarah Hurdy's work, which really talks about um, humans as cooperative breeders and um, alloparents and um, helping each other out and getting, um, making it possible to have 
these helpless babies in pretty quick succession um, because we're able to take care of them the way that we do. That's so exciting. And I'm going to go a little bit off script a bit here, but you know, one thing that you mentioned, Wenda, is that nothing we do is ever non-political, just the the very nature of the work we're doing. And I feel like I have recently fallen into the mommy blogs and new mother and pregnancy TikTok, which is a whole very interesting world of, you know, people giving information in maybe non-traditional ways. And then you have your uh, more traditional recommendations from the American Association of Pediatrics. And I'm just curious, like in your careers, all of these things that you talk about for us as anthropologists seem so intuitive. They make sense because it's what we've been surrounded with. But how do you interface with the with the pediatrics community, with the obstetrics community that have a very, very particular idea of mothers and babies and, and the whole birthing process? Yeah, I just want to say one thing, which was that yesterday in the New York Times, there was an op-ed piece about um, women not having children and about how how that's all, you know, I, I mean, I think it was in the context of abortion, but but it was talking about how there have always been, been some women in society who chose not to have children. And it was kind of an interesting piece, which I was thinking of having my students read if I could find a way to do it in a less political um, context. But you know, we've certainly argued that assistance and Wenda far more than than I um, that um, assistance in childbirth um, has that there's been selection for assistance, right? And that and there's no human culture where the norm is for women to go off by themselves and have babies, and that assistance has been helpful in an you know in a selective sense. And I guess some people have interpreted that to mean that we think, you know, go C-section, go you know, interference, go medical intervention. And that's really not what we mean at all. In fact, we've written quite a bit about too much medical intervention, right? We had a paper in Evolution Medicine and Public Health about the downsides of C-sections, which are, um, which can be quite significant. So we're not really, we're certainly not trying to argue for high-tech medical intervention in a routine way. Obviously, there are cases where it's um, necessary. But but I, I kind of like to think about it the same way we think about food supply, right? Which is that there's very uneven food supply around the world. Some people have too much, some people have too little. If we spread it out more evenly, everybody would be better off. And I think that's true of like this extreme medical intervention in obstetrics as well. In Brazil, in Italy, in Mexico, C-section rates are incredibly high. Um, I was actually at a conference in Brazil where a Brazilian obstetrician said to me, if somebody has a, a vaginal delivery, people say, oh, the operating room wasn't ready. Like, how did that happen? So obviously, we're not trying to, to defend th- those rates, but we're just talking about assistance, not about these high-end interventions. But I'm sure Wenda has more to say about this. Well, the only thing that's kind of interesting to me is that uh, we have been accused of providing fodder for obstetricians uh, to use to, conv- to, to, to convince women that they should have technological interventions. And first of all, we don't think we have, but maybe some of the things we've written have been used. But the other side of that is that I don't think they're paying much attention to us. 
I really don't think obstetricians are paying much attention to anything we're doing. I know people like Jim McKenna are getting a lot of attention from the American Academy of Pediatrics because of the, some of the things that he's doing. I just haven't seen a whole lot of evidence that obstetricians are paying attention to it. In fact, one of the areas that we're kind of uh, alluding to here is, is, the, is Washburn's obstetric dilemma. And if you go do a Google search in, in uh, Google Scholar for obstetrical dilemma in the, in the obstetric literature, what you find is the dilemma of whether or not to rupture the membranes, the dilemma of preeclampsia, do you deliver the baby early or do you let them gestate a little bit more, and the dilemma of cesarean section. You no, don't find any reference to the work of Karen and Wenda who are talking about the uh, obstetric dilemma. So it is a little bit of that. But another thing that, that Karen and I have talked about, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to do with this, but we have talked about maybe in this book, because we're trying to aim this book at a, a, a broad audience. Um, we're trying to take a lot of the stuff that we've already written and write it in a much more user-friendly, reader-friendly, mom-friendly new mom-friendly, new dad-friendly, uh, new grandma-friendly, and so on way. Um, I don't know if you've seen Kate Clancy's book on periods, and I have not read it yet, but I know it was reviewed quite positively in the New York Times yesterday or a couple of days ago. Our book will be in that, I don't know if it's a series or not, but it's the same editor at Princeton University Press, at least that's who our, our contract is with. Um, and we're really trying now to think about whether or not we're actually going to take a stand on some issues. Are we going to do something? And this is something that anthropologists have struggled with for decades. I mean, ever since, you know, the whole, all the issues about our unfortunate history with racism and so on. But there are certainly some things that Karen and I feel come out of our research that could be useful to parents raising children. Um, just ideas about trying to you know, provide as much support as possible so that women don't choose to have a cesarean section because they're afraid of giving birth. Those kind of things, not any anything, you know, too, too uh, earth shaking, I don't think. But we are we haven't decided what, well, how we're going to go with that, because it's a little bit of a risk. But at least I am toward the end of my career in the sense of I'm not going to get fired. <laughs> I am retired. I'm not going to get fired for making for taking a stand. So we actually may. Um, have a few points in the book as we go through it, uh, where we sort of take a stand in a little box on the side or something like that and let people know that they can ignore us or they can say, well, that's a pretty good idea. I'm gonna put that on my mommy blog and see what kind of response I get. So I guess we're playing around with that. It's not, it's not fun to get attacked <laughs> for the things that we've written, um, but it's also sometimes we feel strongly about something and are willing to take a stand. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I mean, obviously, that's a little bit of what we do here. We're not here to challenge people. We're here to amplify messages. But one of the things we do talk a lot about, and we talk at the meetings with folks about, and just recently watching Augustine Fuentes did a Scientific American post and is being eviscerated on Twitter, right? And um, we have certain folks like yourselves who are taking more hits than than others. And it it as you point out, it doesn't feel good, right? We're not politicians. We haven't developed thick skins to be able to deal with these things. And yet the work, uh, the work that some of us do, uh, the work that you all are doing is incredibly impactful. And I can say, having known about it throughout my, uh, you know, we use reproductive assistance. I don't want to make this about me, but it definitely was things we were thinking a lot about was the biomedicalization of birth. 
we had Diane Tober on earlier in the semester who studies um, egg donation and the commodification of egg donation. And so I see positives and negatives about the biomedicalization of reproduction on both ends from both research and from personal experience. So yeah, it, it's you know it's something to be careful of and we were certainly super cautious about it. Um, but I hope that you do make stands. It's important. And I do think that if you don't feel people, uh, obstetricians are listening now, that's just because the new generation of obstetricians that will have read your work are not working yet. And it's going to have a trickle down effect. I, I have no doubts. Um, I want to go a little bit more specific on, you guys have been talking a lot about this, but one of these quotes from the obstetrical dilemma revisited revisited tickled me only because I have an academic heritage to Krogman who refers to Mrs. Homo sapiens. What the hell? I just yeah. had to throw that in there. Just because. Yeah, no, I love that quote that he he said the, um, I forget the obstetrical problems of Mrs. Homo sapiens, right? I think it was that paper was published like in maybe 1952 or something, right? It was in the 50s. It just reinforces what you said. These were throwaway lines and how flip how flippant some of our our predecessors were when they were right. Like, I can't imagine, I you just wouldn't get published if you were so biased in, in how you write now. So it's yeah. worth, it's Thank worth, goodness. yeah, yeah, it's worth, it's worth thinking about these things. But one of the things you, you talked about both so far already and then in that piece was around the social experience around birth. And you note that in the past, they thought, primates would go off by themselves and deliver. And that was like the huge difference between non-human primates and human primates. Recent, more recent work has, has sort of problematized that. So I wonder if you could compare the social experience of childbirth for humans versus non-human primates. Yeah, that's really one of those things that has, I think, by uh, when, when we first started writing about that, there was very little known about primate birth, non-human primate births. I mean, if you think about it, birth is generally a private kind of thing. Um, and primates, you know, they don't necessarily like people sitting there watching them do everything, even if they are well habituated and so on. There were very few descriptions. They were mostly in captivity um, because seeing a birth in the wild is not, even today, it's not common, even if you're looking really hard or something like that. So we didn't know a whole lot about it. So this is one of the risks we all take in our writing. We don't know too much about it. We write what we know at that time. Things change a whole lot. I mean, we first started talking about this almost 50 years ago, or certainly 40 years ago, and lots has, has changed. And I, I like to think, and Karen and I talk about this, that saying that birth tended to be solitary in non-human primates spurred a lot of people to say, wait a minute, not the birth I saw. I'm going to go and pay attention to this. And we have lots of date, lots of interesting information now. It's still not easy to see a primate baby emerge from the birth canal. So we, I think the numbers we have right now that we've been able to trace down are, are in the 30s for having reliable evidence how that- hmm? In the wild. In the wild, yes, in the wild, I'm sorry. Because I, I think most of us recognize that what goes on in captivity is not necessarily representative of the, the species or whatever it is. Um, but anyway, it, it, there's no question that most primates are social animals. And the primate species that give birth, that, that uh, are social, tend to give birth with others around. There's something appealing about baby 
monkeys to all the other monkeys in the group, particularly other females. And so the idea that, that I mean, you know, these are probably animals that recognize something's going on when the female is showing signs of being in labor. Can't get into their heads, of course, but the, something to pay attention to. And they probably are attracted to whatever's going on in the sense of wanting to be near them. And it appears that in a lot of species, the birth occurs with others around them. But as far as I can tell from the reading that I've done, from the, from the reading we've done from the field reports, active assistance in helping a mom complete the delivery is unusual. Um, it's, we're never going to say it doesn't exist or anything like that. There are three or four cases that I'm familiar with where uh, another animal uh, came in, usually I think a, a, a social conspecific, uh, kind of came in and actually grasped the baby as it was coming out of the birth canal. But in those instances, as far as I can tell from reading the description, it wasn't a matter, it didn't look like the mother was in trouble and needed help with quotation marks there. It looked more like the 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 friend was really excited about this and wanted to grab that little baby even before uh, it had emerged from the birth canal. So active assistance at birth, we don't find much evidence of. It's it, There are a couple of descriptions. There's one, I think of a actually a gelada baboon and it's pretty old. It was uh, something that Hans Kummer did um, where a female was dang the baby was dangling. She was crouched on the edge of a cliff and the baby was coming out over the edge of the cliff. I mean, there were there was a lower cliff just a few feet below. So it wasn't like, you know, the Grand Canyon. And a male came down and actually received that baby to protect it, to keep it. It probably would have been damaged by that. So there is there are some cases where the assistance of another individual probably made the difference between life and death. But I would, Karen and I continue to maintain that near universality of it in humans is um, not something we have seen reported for non-human primates. So social context, yes, but active assistance, I'm, we're still sort of saying that's pretty much a human characteristic and not uh, common in non-human primates. Also, but we're waiting for people to challenge that. <laughs> also, I think we know way more about sort of the mechanism of how the baby passes through in non-human primates now than we did when Wenda first started writing about this. And that's mostly because of the work of really, I guess, two, two people or two groups of people. One is Melissa Stoller, who watched monkeys give birth in laboratories, but all over the United States, I think there were three species of monkeys. She actually filmed them. She x-rayed them. She had them set up so that she could take x-rays while they were giving birth. And she showed that a lot of the monkeys were being born in a kind of facial presentation with the neck extended, which we had no idea about. And then the other was this Japanese primatologist who filmed chimpanzees giving birth in the lab. And before that, we had always said that, that giving birth with the fetus in that occiput anterior um, presentation was a, kind of a uniquely human feature. And they showed that it happens in chimpanzees differently than it happens in humans, but that, of course, these generalizations based on less data turn out to often be contradicted. So uh, recent research suggests that that long gestation may not be unique to humans and that the female pelvis is more efficient for walking and caring, but not necessarily to let the big heads escape. So this is going back to the original obstetric dilemma. And so if the size of the neonate isn't what's stimulating the need to give birth to an altrical brain, what is? I mean, obviously you're referring to 
um, Holly Dunsworth's work, which um, argued that pregnancy, the end of pregnancy is triggered by metabolic issues, that if the baby were to keep growing inside the mother's womb, it wouldn't be able to get the nutrients that it needs. And that was set up initially as sort of a contradiction to the obstetrical dilemma, as if the obstetrical dilemma says the end of pregnancy is signaled by when there's a, you know, the baby would no longer fit if it stayed in anymore. They argued that the baby wouldn't be able to get the nourishment it needs if it stayed in anymore. Of course, both things have to be true, right? It's, I mean, I don't think that they're necessarily contradictory in any way. The whole system has to work. The baby has to be able to get out. The baby has to be able to get the nutrients that it needs while it's in the womb. And selection is acting on all of those as it does all the time, acting on multiple on multiple features. There's also been some work that was also part of that paper um, on the relative efficiency of locomotion in males and females, because I think that it was what, what people always said was that um, there was a trade-off because having a broad pelvis was less efficient for walking. And so that's why males have a narrower pelvis and that's why there's sexual dimorphism in the pelvis. And I think I think it, it that I think that argument was probably dramatically overstated, but uh, there are certainly other disadvantages to having, there are advantages, as you said, Malika, to having a wide pelvis that um, Kara Walsh-Scheffler has shown having to do with carrying and carrying babies, but also carrying other burdens. But there are also disadvantages to having a wide pelvis, perhaps uh, one that people haven't looked at too much, but are now starting to talk about is pelvic floor integrity, right? So um, having pelvic floor injuries is obviously a, a big problem um, and can be a sort of a locus of selection um, focus. Um, and also um, we want to think about things like injuries. So women get many more knee injuries than men. And that seems to be related to the geometry of the pelvis, right? It's wide up there and the femora are slanting down more, but that's contributing to greater numbers of knee injuries. So, um, so I think there's a lot of different things going on there. And I think the lesson for me is that it all has to work and showing that selection is acting in one way doesn't mean it isn't acting in another way. I love that it reinforces the sort of mosaic idea that that is emerging. People are using that word more and more, but it's clear from uh, your work, all the many things that go into human evolution, this is one of many, but it's super, super important. So I want to ask two final questions. One, can I just say one more thing, though, that I thought of that I want to say about gestation length? Can. Humans have the gestation length that you would predict for a primate of our brain and body size, right? And we have a, a gestation length that's very close to the other great apes. So I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about our gestation length. I think what's maybe different is the maturational state of the infant, but not the actual length of gestation. So one, I'm, I'm super happy that you're with Princeton Press because as I've explored book publishing and my friends who get books out, they the service they give their authors seems great. So it sounds like you're in a uh, with a great editor. What's the name of the book going to be? <laughs> we haven't decided yet. Um, the 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 sort of subtitle is uh, how how our babies made us human. We want to try to get something. If anybody wants to write in and yeah. suggest something, that'd be you great. Have a recommendation. 
get something punchy uh, to be the the pre preceding that. But I will say that I looked on uh, Amazon for how our ex made us human. And there are, I think, 36 other books with that subtitle. So yep. it'll just be one of many. But that's the general idea of what we're going to try to do. All right. So listeners, the challenge is out. The crowdsource, <laughs> the, the book title for, for Karen and, and Wenda. Thank you both so much. This has been truly a pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to to the book. So excited. It's going to be fantastic. We're looking forward to the book too, actually. But yeah, we, are too. <laughs> we have a lot of work to do before we get there. Yeah, right. Uh, so is there a great, if you want to be reached out to, what's the best way for people to learn more about either of your works? Email? Send us email? Yeah, email. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've got my only website is at uh, Mex New Mexico State University, from which I retired about 15 years ago. So it's not <laughs> <up to> date. <laughs> it's far from up to date. So the best thing to do um, would and and I I I am at the at the School for Advanced Research in Santa Fe. So you could you could find my link there as well. Well, Perfect. apologies if we did if we were uh, way out of date in our introduction of you. Then I think that was our source for for your bio, so we may have to go and redo that. <laughs> That's fine. And you can find the Human Biology Association on Twitter at humbioassoc. You can find me at chris underscore ly, and you can find me at sky s k y y underscore mall uh, on Twitter as well. Thank you all for listening, and Karen and Wenda, thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.